today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 15, verse 1 to 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to NCF. My name is John. I have the privilege of sharing with you God's word. And once again, want to welcome those of you, if you came in a little late, uh, for those of you visiting us for the first time, if you are investigating the Christian faith or if you don't consider yourself a Christian yet, but you are open to the possibility and you want to learn more, we hope and pray that our time will not only be educational, but even edifying to the point where you would consider the claims of Jesus to be true. Uh, We're going to begin our time of service by uh, spending a few moments Going in prayer. Did we already pray, by the way? Pastor James, did we already pray before this? I'm so out of it right now, guys. I am so sorry. So, yes, uh, let's spend a few moments. Let me pray, okay? I'm, I'm a little cuckoo. I had a crazy morning, folks. Come see me after service if you want to know, right? All right, let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would help us as we sit at your feet, asking for your spirit to teach us through your word. God, we have gone through this world these past six days, trekking through all the hardships and all the trials and all the struggles with our own sin and the sin of others. We pray now that you would minister and speak to us. Lord, I pray especially for those who may be here considering the claims of Christianity. Lord, would you reveal yourself to them? And of course, to the saints, to my brothers and sisters, would you nourish and strengthen them? For they are weary and they need to be refreshed yet again by your word. Would you help us now and that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, it was bound to happen. For a man in my situation, how could it not? And yet for the person who was affected, there was no excuse for the damage was done. The time? 5.45 a.m. in the morning. The place, my living room couch. The victim, my oldest, Kara. The crime, in an attempt to express how good of a morning it was, I, the victim's father, refer to my oldest by the wrong name. Not once, not twice, but three times. Oh, good morning, Leah. I mean, Selah. I mean, Judah. No, Kara. Kara. Good morning, Kara. Needless to say, her response to my good morning was not met with her usual beautiful bright smile. Instead, a facial expression that conveyed to me deep hurt, a sense of rejection, which she then translated in the form of a question that went like this. Daddy, don't you know who I am? Now, as painful as that was, it was not nearly as painful as the follow-up that came with that question, which was, Daddy, do you love me last? Kara is only eight years old, but she is old enough to know that to be at the bottom of any list, but especially the list of what your possible name could be by your father, is a possible indication that maybe she doesn't matter. She is not as loved. She is not as treasured as her siblings. Now, thankfully, 
by God's grace, I was able to convince her that is not the case. I love her as much as I love her siblings. But this little exchange reminded me of the sad reality that there are families out there where there are particular children in a home where they may not be as favored or maybe even downright rejected in comparison to the other siblings. And who knows, maybe there are some of you who grew up in households like that. It is such a tragic but sad reality that there are so many children who grew up in homes where they are not loved and treasured by the very people who have the responsibility of doing that the most. And yet that's the sad reality that we live in. And yet that sad reality sometimes seeps over into the church where so many children of God struggle with this same sense of fear of rejection, the same sense of wondering, are they loved the least by their heavenly father, God? As of 2017, there are 2.2 million, excuse me, 2.2 billion Christians trekking this globe. And I don't think it's an unfair conclusion to assume that there are some within those billions who sometimes wonder if the ultimate Father in heaven truly loves them the way they may love other Christians that they are surrounded by. So many Christians, and maybe you are one today, struggle with this assurance that maybe they're not loved, maybe they're not favored, <clears throat> maybe they're not blessed as they see other people in their churches or other people that they see around them who are Christians doing great things for the Lord and wonder, God, do you love me least? If you find yourself this morning chronically, constantly, or frequently struggling, which I think most of us do, then this particular message today is something that you want to pay attention to because in this parable, as we're continuing our series through the parables of Christ, Jesus is trying to show us and therefore assure us that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you claim him as Lord and Savior, that no child of God should ever feel what my daughter was wondering that morning. Daddy, do you love me last? And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you from our text Number one, what powerful people say about God's love. Number two, what Jesus says about God's love. And finally, number three, why Jesus is right about God's love. What powerful people say about God's love, what Jesus says about it, and why Jesus is right. Let's jump right in. First, what powerful people say about God's love. Starting in verse one, we read as following. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Pause right there. Your attention, please. Our passage begins with two groups of people surrounding Jesus during a meal. You see, throughout the ministry of Jesus, he was constantly being invited, which we're going to get into in just a moment. And usually two groups of people would always be there whenever he was invited to meals. The first group were the tax collectors and sinners, which we'll flesh out in just a moment. And then you have the other group, the second group, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And it was the second group that was not particularly happy with Jesus, as evidenced by the fact that they were, in our passage, grumbling grumbling. That's such an interesting word if you think about it, right? Grumbling. And the reason why it's so interesting is because according to language experts, it's an onomatopoeic word. You guys know what an onomatopoeic word is? Apparently it's a word that means what it sounds like. So think of words like boom or pop or click. It's like an old Batman TV show, right? Right? That's an onomatopoeic word. So with that in mind, we ask ourselves, what does the word grumbling sound like? It sounds like a growl right 
rumbling, right? Like what a wild animal would do when they're threatened or angry or agitated. In fact, linguists tell us that the word growl is actually an etymological root word to grumbling. That is one of the root words that make up the word grumbling comes from the word growl. Now, what I find so interesting about that is that basically what the Bible is saying is that the Pharisees and scribes, they're behaving like wild animals growling. And I think that's so insightful because I think that tells us something about the underlying mindset that these scribes and Pharisees has as it pertains to God's love. And let me explain what I mean by first asking you a simple observational question. What is the reason why these scribes and Pharisees are grumbling in the first place? Well, they actually tell us in their own words recorded in verse 2. Read it again. This man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. Turns out these scribes and Pharisees are grumbling because Jesus allowed, quote unquote, sinners to eat with himself and with them. Confused? Let me break it down. In this time, whenever religious leaders gained prominence and they gained popularity, they would usually be invited to the homes of other religious leaders just so that they can be exposed and hear more about their teachings. And usually in that time, the custom was the guest of honor, the person who was invited, was permitted to invite other people. Usually it was the followers or the disciples of the guest, right? But here's the thing with Jesus. Whenever he was invited by a religious leader, a Pharisee or a Sadducee, he not only made sure that his disciples were there, but he also invited other types of people, namely tax collectors and sinners, okay? He allowed people like them to come. And it was because of this, the scribes and the Pharisees started to grumble because just like wild animals start to growl when you get too close to their food, These scribes and Pharisees started to growl in the form of grumbling when these tax collectors and sinners got too close to their food. Why? Why did they act that way? What was the issue? Consider this very insightful quote from theologian Tim Chester. This is from his book, Meals with Jesus. Listen to what he writes. Quote, food matters. Meals matters. Meals are full of significance. Few acts are more expressive of companionship than the shared meal. Someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or well on the way to becoming one. The word companion comes from the Latin word cum, together, and pani, bread. Food connects. It connects us to family. It turns strangers into friends, and it connects us with people around the world. Consider what you had for breakfast this morning. Tea, coffee, sugar, cereal, grapefruit. Much of it was produced in another state or country. Food enabled us to be blessed by people around the world and bless them in return. What's he saying? He's saying food is the means in which we can create, establish, and strengthen loving relationships. Again, food is the means in which we can create, establish, and develop and strengthen loving relationships. And this was especially true in Jesus' day. And given that the Pharisees were grumbling at the fact that they had to share their food with tax collectors and sinners, their message is clear, which is what? God does not love such people. God does not want to be around tax collectors and sinners. He would never welcome these kinds of people to his table. Why would they come to that conclusion? Well, because they came to that conclusion. Remember, these are religious leaders. These are the representatives of God during Jesus' day to where their reputation was. Those whom they invited to their table represented whom God would bring to their table, which further means those whom they would befriend and love would represent those whom God would love and favor, right? And because they didn't want to eat with tax collectors and sinners, evidenced by their grumbling, they clearly are stating, God never ever would want to be around the likes of tax collectors and sinners, the kinds of like that Jesus is hanging around all the time, which further means 
God will never notice. He will never be drawn to. He will never be attracted to. He will never desire to be around such people to have any sort of relationship where he would create it, establish it, or fortify it in any way whatsoever. Now, of course, from this, you can easily extrapolate kinds of people who they assume God would want to be around and eat and fellowship with. And it's who? Themselves, right? Scribes and Pharisees, which begs the question, who exactly were these scribes and Pharisees? What were characteristics of them that distinguished them from the rest of the world? Well, two quotes I want to um, give to you right now, both from the same scholarly source, the InterVarsity Press Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospel. Listen to how they describe Pharisees and scribes respectively, starting with this, quote, Both the rabbinic and gospel materials appear to support the view that Pharisaic influence with the masses exceeded that of their rivals. Where rulers could be influenced, Pharisees lobbied for their views. Moreover, Pharisees were sufficiently schooled in the ways of the world to participate in councils and coalitions with rivals when the situation required it and common goals could be established. In this respect, they function as the powerful political interest group. Then going on, in the ancient Near East civilizations, the highly prized skill of writing made the scribes significant members of the community, especially as political advisors, diplomats, and experts in the ancient sciences and mysteries, including astrology. Interesting. Now, just from these two descriptions, we can easily see that the scribes and Pharisees, they were the movers and shakers of the day. They were the cultural elites, the political insiders, the very wealthy, the celebrities of the day. I mean, I would imagine that if Twitter and Instagram existed back then, all of their posts would go viral. These are the viral people of society. These are the groups of people that everybody wished they could be associated with, the people that they wish they could become. That's who these people were. They were the powerful people of society. And according to these powerful people, God's love is only given to the likes of them. Or if I could have put it this way, the only types of people God is attracted to, the only types of people God notices, the only types of people that God desires are the ones who are embodied in this group. The rich, the successful, the famous, the beautiful. That is essentially what they're saying. But according to Jesus, he says, no, that's absolutely wrong. And to convey his disagreement, he tells them a parable, a story, which leads me to my next point, what Jesus says about God's love. Starting in verse three, let's have our passage back up. We read, so he, Jesus told him this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous person who needs no repentance. Come on back. In his attempt to express why he disagrees with the views of the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus begins to tell a story, a story about one lone sheep that is lost and a shepherd who does all he can to find that lost sheep. Now, I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. When Jesus told parables, it was for the purpose of him to reveal God's love for humanity. God, Jesus, told stories in the form of parables to teach this idea of how how much God loves humanity. So usually in certain parables, a character will represent God. And another character will represent the people whom he deeply loves. And in this situation, it's no different. The shepherd who is looking for the lost sheep, that represents God. And the lost sheep itself represents the types of people whom God loves. And the reason why we know 
that the lost sheep represents the one whom God particularly loves is because of the way that the character who represents God, the shepherd, how he behaves. How does he behave? Well, first of all, he behaves by paying attention, right? The first thing he noticed as he sees a flock of 100, well, really 99, is that this particular sheep is gone. The fact that he's able to pick up, notice, pay attention right away, almost as if that's the first sheep he looks for when he sees this massive crowd, he noticed that this particular sheep is gone, which happens to be the one that he deeply loves. But then you look at the reaction of the shepherd. What does he do? He leaves the 99 and he goes out of his way to search for it. And this, of course, is even magnifying this notion that he really finds this sheep particularly important and precious by what it says at the end of verse 4. What does it say? That he is going to go out until what? Until he finds it. That little phrase right there seems to convey this idea that this shepherd loves this sheep so much that he's willing to do anything, no matter how far he has to go, no matter what treacherous things that he has to go through, so that he could find this sheep you know in many ways the behavior of this shepherd is kind of reminiscent to some of the kind of ridiculous and outlandish love songs that were popular in our culture at one point in our history for example in this situation i'm reminded of the 1967 smash hit by marvin Gaye, ain't no mountain high enough you guys know that song right remember how the lyrics go listen baby ain't no mountain high ain't no valley low ain't no river wide enough baby if you need me call me no matter where you are no matter how far don't worry baby just call my name i'll be there in a hurry you don't have to worry and this is the chorus because baby there ain't no mountain high enough ain't no valley low enough ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you babe (laughs) imagine if jesus when you see him in heaven says hey babe You hear these lyrics, and it's almost uncanny how easily it could be the theme song of this shepherd because even though this song and the expectations of love is not possible for any human being, Jesus says it is possible for God. That's an accurate description of how much this God loves this sheep, the person represented by the sheep, the people represented by the sheep. And now we ask ourselves, who exactly does Jesus have in mind? When he thinks about the kind of sheep that he's willing to do all this for, who is embodied and represented by this lost sheep? Well, the text makes it clear. It's the people of verse 1. Read it again. Now, tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Tax collectors and sinners. Those are the ones whom Jesus says God notices. Those are the ones whom God is attracted to. Those are the ones whom God pursues at all costs. Now, for those of you who grew up going to Sunday school, you might be thinking to yourself, you know what? I know who tax collectors are. I know who the prostitutes are. I know who they are, or at least you think you do. You might be thinking to yourself, oh, yeah, pastor, I was taught this stuff in Sunday school. Yeah, the tax collectors, those are the Uncle Toms. Those are the Jews who betrayed their own people by working for the Roman government and basically extorting their own people in the form of taxes and giving it to the Roman government, meanwhile pocketing the excess in their own pockets, right? Yeah, those are the Uncle Toms of Jewish society. And the prostitutes, yeah, I know, excuse me, the sinners, yes, I know who they are. They're they're immoral people. They are the prostitutes. Those are the women who sell their bodies, and while doing so, wreck marriages, destroy homes. Those are the homewreckers of Israelite society. Yes, I know who the tax collectors, I know who the sinners are, and indeed, It sounds like you do know who they are. But the question is, do you know them the way Jesus knows them? What do you mean, Pastor? Well, what I mean by that is, 
You know the general description of what a tax collector and what a sinner is. But do you know the underlying people who are represented in that general description? Do you know the individuals? Do you know the types of people who made up those two categories? For example, in Luke chapter 19, we're introduced to the chief tax collector, the tax collector of all, the leaders of the tax collector, a man by the name of Zacchaeus. And what kind of person was he? Starting in verse 2 of Luke 19, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to look at Jesus, but he was born too short to see over the crowd. I find it interesting that Luke finds it necessary to speak on the fact that he was a short dude, that Zacchaeus was a shorty, so to speak, right? I mean, it just seems so irrelevant to the story. Why put in that little detail? I wonder if he does that because he's trying to make us uh, be aware of another story in the Bible that we see about a short person who much is not expected of. Who am I thinking of? I'm thinking of King David. You know, in the book of 1 Samuel, it records how after King Saul, the first king of Israel, as he failed his role as king over Israel, God summoned the prophet Samuel to go find the next king. And, and God told Samuel, go to the house of Jesse. For one of his children will become the next king of Israel. So Samuel obeys. He goes to the house of Jesse, and immediately he sees the first son he encounters. You remember his name? Eliab. Eliab. And he says, surely Eliab is going to be the next king of Israel. Why? Because he was tall. He had stature. He was good looking. He was muscular. And God says, no, not him. It's the little shorty over there. It's David. See, even in the Bible, there's kind of like an underlying assumption that people have about who God would favor and who God would consider to be his special one, right? Who ended up becoming the man after God's own heart. Surely it can't be that, that puny little shorty there named David, right? This is the kind of cultural environment that Zacchaeus grew up in, which I wouldn't uh, uh, be surprised if as he was growing up as a little shorty, he's constantly being tacitly, indirectly reminded that you're not the favored one of God. God would never notice someone like you to where maybe it would have driven him not only to be a simple tax collector, but to be the chief tax collector of all. But let's move on to the other category of people who would eat with Jesus. Sinners, the prostitutes, women who would choose a line of profession, but if you read carefully, ended up not choosing that profession at all. Did you know why women were prostitutes? It wasn't because they aspired to be prostitutes. Listen to the background of this information from the Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels. It writes this. More often, prostitutes were female slaves forced to provide income to their masters by the exploitation of their bodies. Exposed female infants were often taken in and raised as slaves, normally for the sex trade. Infants could be sold into prostitutions. Captured female slaves might be used for the same purpose. In the days of the Bible, women were not aspiring to be prostitutes. They were victimized by prostitutes. Usually it was either women, uh, excuse me, children, girls, as infants who were not wanted. They were thrown out into the field. And so a pimp in the ancient world would pick it up, care for it, so that it could groom this child to be a sex slave, right? Or if you happen to go to war with another nation and your nation was defeated, the women of that nation would be handed off and basically be a sex slave. In the ancient world, being a prostitution is not something that, that you chose to do for yourself. It was something that was happened to you. And when you consider that, you see a recurring theme. And you know what this theme is? Rejection. Rejection. Right? A woman who's rejected by her own parents to where she ends up as a prostitute. Or maybe a woman who's caught up in a, a war between the nations. 
to where you get captured. You know, in the ancient world, it was thought that if your nation lost the war, that meant your God abandoned you. Your God didn't want to be your God anymore. He rejected you, right? So even in that kind of context, we see this recurring theme of you are a reject. You are unworthy. You are unwanted. You are nothing special. You are insignificant. You are nothing special, right? See, the point I'm trying to make here is this. When Jesus saw tax collectors and he saw sinners, he didn't see Uncle Tom's. He didn't see homewreckers. He saw people that the world said, you are a reject. He saw people who saw themselves and says, I am a reject. I am the least of all. I am the last. Right? Now, why is all this so important? It's important because in our day and age, in the social climate that we live in, you don't have to be a tax collector. You don't have to be a prostitute to struggle with this issue of rejection or the fear of rejection, especially in this Facebook era that we're living in today. You know, I just found out recently in a conversation I had with another pastor that apparently it's like really faux pas. You should never, never unfriend somebody. Did you know that? I heard like you should never, ever at all costs unfriend somebody because if you do that's considered like the worst cultural sin you could ever commit unfollow them but don't unfriend them because if they find out oh you're not just rejecting their friendship uh, their facebook friendship you're rejecting them right that's how it's interpreted right and given the ubiquitous influence that facebook has where where the spectrum of responses is is mild depression to even suicide i think it's clear to say that this recurring fear of rejection is a driving force that compels us to live a certain way to where it helps us decide what we're to do what we're not to do what we're to like what we're not to like who we're to see as favorable who we're to see as unfavorable right I mean, look at all the memes and the Facebook things that we do. For example, with Donald Trump, it's not very flattering. What are we trying to do in the Facebook community with our president? Like, he is unfavorable. He sucks. He is nobody, right? The fear of shame and rejection is well alive in our society, right? You don't have to be a tax collector. You don't have to be a prostitute. You can struggle the way they did without having to fall into those things, but the good news is you can also have the hope that Jesus extends to them. What do I mean? Let me explain by going to my final point, why Jesus is right about God's love. Now, when most people read this parable, they get bothered by it because of what it says in verse four. Can we have verse four up there? Listen to what it says. What man of you Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Now, the reason why people are bothered by this verse is because they interpret it in such a way to where the shepherd looks like a, a messed up shepherd. Why? Because by his actions, it almost looks like he's abandoning the 99. And for what? For one sheep, right? I mean, just by his actions, it almost sounds like, like the shepherd is saying, hey, 99 sheep, I love you guys but not as much as that one lone sheep. So I got to go. See you later. Have a good life. Good luck. You know, don't die, right? And then he just goes off, right? That's how some people see it. In other words, the way it sounds on the surface is that it's referring to the very favorable kind of love that Jesus is trying to refute in the whole parable itself, right? How are we to understand this? What is it that we're trying to understand? Well, here's what you need to understand. And let me, let me, preface it by asking this question who do the 99 represent who are the 99 sheep in the story the way that the passage is written is clearly it represents the scribes 
and the Pharisees, right? If you remember from my first point, these are the powerful people, the elite, the group that everyone wants to be around, right? The group that everyone wishes that they could be a part of. The rich, the famous, the beautiful, the celebrities. And just like people who are like that today, these scribes and Pharisees, they believed they were truly superior and more important than everyone else. More specifically, they thought they were morally superior to where they think they could never become like a prostitute, never become like a tax collector, and therefore not have to worry about the underlying fear of tax collectors and prostitutes, namely the fear of rejection. These people say, God would never reject me. I'm an unrejectable kind of person, right? That's their underlying mindset, which Jesus verifies in the way that he describes them in verse 7. What does he call them? They're righteous, and they never have to repent. Now, of course, by saying that, he is not actually saying that these scribes and Pharisees are really righteous and that they never need to repent as if they're sinless. No, he's simply reiterating the self-delusion assessment that they have about themselves. Namely, I'm so pure, I'm so righteous, God would never reject me, right? I could never be a tax collector, I could never be a you know, prostitute. Now, when you understand all this, then you can understand properly what verse 4 is really saying. See, verse 4 is not conveying the shepherd as being an evil shepherd who's abandoning his flock. Actually, we see that the 99 are actually the evil ones because they're not following their shepherd. They're not following him as he pursues this lost sheep. Listen to what New Testament scholar Benjamin Keach, what he says, quote, Why does Christ leave the 99 in the wilderness? Because they saw no need of Christ, but looked upon themselves as righteous person. He leaves them because they have rejected him and grew headstrong and unruly and would not own him to be their prince and savior. Here's the question. Why would these 99 sheep not follow their shepherd? Why would they not go with him and go help in the search of finding that one lost sheep? Why? Well, go back to that quote. Don't take it down yet. Listen again to what it says in that one sentence. It says, they saw no need for Christ, but looked upon themselves as righteous person. You see this emphasis of a group and collective mindset? You know, the first person plural, they, they, right? What does that mean? You know, when you think you're right about something and no one agrees with you, right? Like if you really think you're right about something, but everyone you talk to, all of your friends, all of your family members are like, no. It's kind of hard to hold on to that belief that you're right, right? (laughs) But if you think you're right about something, but everyone else agrees with you, it's almost impossible to think that you could ever be wrong, right? There's something about group validation and group consensus that gives a sense of conviction that what you believe is true is actually true. I mean, after all, this is why scientists, they do peer-reviewed journals because they want their peers to validate in a community that says, yes, your discovery, your experiments, they're right. This is why peer pressure is so powerful and almost impossible to resist because there is something about this idea of group consensus and validation that gives you a certain settled conviction that what you think is true is not simply your own personal subjective opinions or biases. No, if other people can see it as true as well, then it must be true, right? And here's the thing. This can also be true when it comes to assessing people as being lovable or unlovable. If you think a person is unlovable, but everyone around is like, no, he's a good guy or she's a good girl, right? As much as you don't want to admit it, there's a party like, maybe it's me that's off, right? But if you say that dude is a jerk and everyone's like, yeah, he's a jerk. He's like, see, 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 right? And you have this certain level of conviction, right? But Jesus says, that's not me. 
You see, one of the things that could happen when you have this kind of group consensus mindset is that it's only what the group says that is really true. It's only what the group validates that is really objectively right and wrong. Okay? And that's also true in terms of who we say is lovable and unlovable. But Jesus says, no, that is not true. There's actually a greater authority that carries greater weight than what everyone else says. And you know whose authority? My authority. In other words, Jesus says, if the whole world says that you are terrible, but I say to you, I love you and you're not terrible, guess who's true? Jesus. Who is right? The group or Jesus? Jesus. Jesus, right? Could it be that the reason why the sheep don't follow the shepherd is because they were under the assumption that the shepherd would agree with what they decided as a group? Surely our shepherd would know that what we have decided, you know, is just not true. That, that, that this sheep is not worth following. We're not going to go after them. So the shepherd is going to follow our lead. Jesus is saying by telling a story of a shepherd who's willing to leave the 99, is him saying, no, my authority, my truth is weightier and more true than what everyone else says. Now, if you realize this, do you realize what it means? It means that when God says he loves you, and when I say you, I mean singular you, That means he loves you with a personal, unique kind of love that no one else has. See, God doesn't love you as an individual with this kind of generic, general, cookie-cutter love that's essentially no different, basically a clone love that he has for the rest of the world. No, Jesus is saying in this parable that God loves you with a specific kind of love that will be unlike any other love he will have for anyone else or for anyone else who ever existed. Your love that he has for you is so different. God's love for Peter is different to God's love for John. God's love for Mary is different to God's love for Martha. God's love for Daniel is different to God's love for Isaiah. His love for you is so unique and set apart that will never be matched by any other love that he will have for anyone else. And his love for anybody else will not match his love for you. You know, when I was in college, there was a very popular Christian idea that says, you know, if you were the only human being on earth that needed to be saved from your sin, God still would have done what he did when he saved the world. He would still become a man, Jesus Christ, and he would still suffer humiliating death, right, and and rise again, and he would ascend to heaven. He would do all of that just for the salvation of just one person living on the earth. That's how much he loves you with such a unique love. And people who heard that in my circle at the time, who are very uber-reformed and, and crazy in that way. They're like, oh, that doesn't sound biblical. Where is that in the Bible? It's right here. It is in the Bible. Verse 7, what does it say? Just so I tell, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner, one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous person who needs no repentance. Do you see this imagery of the shepherd in verse 5, how he carries the lamb, that one lamb on his shoulders? What is Jesus trying to convey? He's saying, even if there's one sinner whose sin I have to bear, whose one sin I have to carry on my shoulders, I will do. Right? That's how much his love is for you. My favorite theologian, or one of my favorite theologians, by the name of Abraham Kuyper, puts it this way. Listen to what he says. For many years, you may have had a general love for God and yet have never come to know God. 
This knowledge of God only comes when love for him takes on a personal character. When one of the pathway of life for the first time you have met him. When the Lord has become a personal presence by your side of your own self. When God and you have entered into a conscious, vital, personal, particular relationship. He your father and you his child. Not merely one of his children. No, but his child in an individual way. In a personal relationship different from that of other children of God. The most intimate fellowship conceivable in heaven and on earth. He your father, your shepherd, your bosom friend, and your God. Jesus is making it clear. He loves you with an unrepeatable, unique, distinguished love that no one else in all of eternity will ever have. All because of what Jesus has done on the cross for you. Now, friends, do you know what that means? It means, practically speaking, that when you're in a setting like this, when you're in church or when you're around your other Christian friends who don't go to the same church with you but go to other churches, right? Because you're confident that God loves you like this, when you see those Christian friends of yours doing well, right? Doing quote-unquote better, maybe in a happier marriage, maybe part of a growing business that's not as um, struggling as yours is, or maybe attending a better school, or maybe has children, you're still struggling to have kids, right? You can see that, and instead of interpreting that as a tacit, like slap in the face that God doesn't love you as much because he hasn't blessed you as much, you can actually see that and say, you know what? Amen. Praise God. I am genuinely happy for you. I don't see your success as a threat to my relationship with God. In fact, I see it as a way where I can celebrate in my relationship with God. I see your success as my own personal success to where I cheer you on. I'm encouraged when life is going your way instead of being discouraged because my life isn't going as good as yours, right? One of the things that we see in scripture is that the gospel makes God's people unified, right? And you know why it's unified? It's because there is no set of competitive spirit that we see out in the world where it's so Darwinian, where it's all about every man for himself, the strong versus the weak, right? Where we see other people's success as a threat to our own success, right? Or they see our success as a threat to theirs. No, we can come together with a unity to where we can truly celebrate for each other's success. And we can also genuinely weep when other people around us who we're called to love as brothers and sisters in Christ are struggling rather than secretly kind of relishing in and being happy that they're not doing as well as you are. See, that's the kind of unity that the gospel calls us to, and that's the kind of unity that the world notices because that unity doesn't exist. And so NCF, let me ask you, where are you at this morning? Where are you at in your sense of your personal walk with God as it pertains to other people that you're in fellowship with here? Do you, you know, go over someone else's house and it's bigger than yours, it's nicer than yours, and are you genuinely happy that they get to have it or you think, why not me? Do you get to hang around, you know, folks who have, you know, <clears throat> a great life, a happy marriage, you know, vacations multiple times a year and you're just still struggling to make it and you're like, God, you must not love me. You must love me less. My challenge to you is really hold on to the belief of the gospel. Really hold on to the belief of the shepherd who loves you, who is really for you. At this time, I want to end my message with some next step practicalities, and it begins with this. First, if you're here today and you're investigating Christianity, and what you heard today is really compelling you to where you want to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, please take this time now, offer up a prayer to the Lord, and confess your sins 
Acknowledge that you need to be forgiven by his mercy and make him the Lord of your life. Make him the king of your life. And then number two, to the rest of you, saints, memorize verse seven of Luke 15. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over a 99 righteous person who needs no repentance. Memorize that and go back to it every time you're struggling. Next time you're on Facebook, you're like, oh, their life is better than mine. Recite this, right? Recite this. And always recite it over and over till you really understand. My God loves me. Number three, write out the names of other people who have made you feel insecure in your relationship with God because you think God loves them more and pray for them. Pray that God will continue to flourish them and pray that God will change your heart to genuinely mean it. Okay? Number four, write out also the names of people who you think God doesn't love as much as you and pray for them. Ask God to bless them more than he has blessed you and pray for a genuine heart to mean it. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to really live out the truth that this parable is teaching, that you don't love any of us last, you don't love any of us first, but you all, you love us equally, but you love us in unique personal ways that gives us a grounding security and confidence that frees us from any sort of competitiveness or insecurity or jealousy or envy, thereby allowing us to be unified as one family. God, would you help us to really hold on to that truth so that we could be a people who really are salt and light and we can show the world the hope of the world that's tearing itself apart with such Darwinian tactics. Oh God, free us from those things so that we can have a message to embody to a world that desperately needs to hear it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.